This is the Barbarian Rhetoric Podcast. Acta non verba. Another beautiful day out, and today I have Graham and Damon with me. Welcome, gentlemen. Good night. Good night. Howdy. Good. Graham, give us a little bit about yourself to get us going. All right, so Graham Smith here, um, uh, based in New Zealand. So um, I've got a bit of a presence on Twitter with Smith underscore Graham. I've written a couple of uh, a couple of ebooks, but in New Zealand, I, I work in the education sector. So my job in real life is actually working um, often with adults in a, in a kind of a tertiary education training setting. setting. And um, I've been doing that for probably the last ten or twelve years. And uh, I actually work with Damon, who's on the podcast today, and he's a, a, a colleague of mine, but he's also a really good friend of mine. So it's, it's fantastic to uh, bring these kind of two parts of my uh, world together. So first of all, thanks, Nate, for the opportunity um, again to be on the podcast today. And Damon, it's good to have you here. Um, Absolutely. Give us a little bit, Damon. Thanks, guys. That's that's awesome. Uh my background is yeah education as well in New Zealand, but it's a bit of a um, a bit of a weird beginning. I'm I'm that kid at school that um, was never able to keep up with uh, what was going on in class and just wanted to play ball tag at um, break time and uh, really struggled with a school system. And then for some reason, just kind of found my feet after I left school in terms of the academic world and managed to find some success. And, um, and found myself teaching um, classes at a training college of other um, students who dropped out of the school system. So like um, people aged from say 18 through to, to 60 sometimes in a class. Found myself teaching these students who were much like myself, had difficulties uh, learning, had difficulties doing maths, all of these things and just getting their lives together. And, um, and spent probably 10 years there. So while I was there, I um, raced through a a degree, there's this, this, these qualifications, <laughs> race to a degree in um, social science, but don't hold that against me. And, um, and then uh, continue uh, to sort of be interested in, in how people learn and particularly how people get out of um, poverty and, you know, being unemployed and kind of find their feet and come into their own way, I guess, and, uh, and continue to study. And finally, um, just recently finished a PhD in um, people who've had really bad experiences at with maths at school, you know, kind of what makes them tick and what happens to them when they're thrown back into having to learn maths after they've already experienced failure and so on. I'm trying to coach them through it and get them to see some success. So I'm that kid that uh, didn't do too well at school and then uh, managed to kind of crack the, crack the code on how the academic world works. And, um, and my goal is to try to pass that on to other people, you know, who feel completely disconnected from like, you know, the intellectual world and so on. So probably a little bit similar to Graham. I think that's why Graham and I kind of, um, what we talk about resonates with each other a little bit, I think. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what I do in New Zealand. Okay. And, I, and this, this spawns a question. Then this is what we're shooting for today. We're spawning questions. One of my theories with school, the whole, whole structure from start to finish and, you know, I'll probably get hate mail on it, but I think this should be segregated between boys and girls because they have different educational, uh, you know, speeds. And boys, the young men, everyone, I, I think are too contained. You know, they are told to sit in a chair. They're told, you know, they, they don't have time to let their frustration out. Whereas, personally, I think if, you know, the first thing in the morning, you let them all go be physical and burn some of that energy off, then they kind of calm down and they can sit and actually study and learn. Do you agree with that? Do you think that, that, that um, lads, you know, boys all the way from elementary up through, do they just have, are they just so wound up that sometimes they need to do physical stuff before they start doing the educational part? Graham, can I can I jump in here for a second? No, this, this is for you, Damon. This, oh, this is yeah, for, yeah. this is for you. you. Yeah, you, you go I'm for it. I'll just, in this. I'll just right. add a very quick uh, contextual thing here. Damon's got four boys, so four four big strapping oh. lads. So I think he's nice. he's very well qualified to to answer this question. Yeah, and I would say, Nate, amen, absolutely. I think you've totally nailed it in terms of boys and girls as well. Um, but yeah, you know, taking a um, 
highly energetic kid and plonking him in a chair in a classroom, telling him to, you know, sit there and listen and um, pay attention and don't get antsy. And, you know, uh, it's just a recipe for trouble. And then throw a few girls in there as well, you know, in their teenage years in the class, man, you know, we couldn't set it up more difficult for these guys. Uh, I really like the, uh, the Greek model of uh, education, which was physical training as well. And the idea was you just got all that stuff out of your system and you kind of knew your physical limits and so that helped you um, assess risk and everything in your life and also allowed you to blow off all that steam doing dangerous stuff. Um, and then you came in and you had, you know, you were interested in learning or what you were learning had some relevance to what you were doing in the real world. But I completely agree. I think we've got kids sitting in classes learning stuff that's not um, particularly interesting or relevant. They're full of energy. They want to get out there and do stuff. Um, and they just, you know, and certainly in New Zealand at the moment, I think um, – New Zealand's funny uh, because we have this, we're a little bit of an outlier. If I just go off on a, a, a tangent for a second, we're an outlier in the world in that we are the most structured educationally. So for example, if you go to school in New Zealand, you work hard, you get your qualifications, you're likely to earn well and you know have a pretty good life. America, interestingly enough, is the opposite. America yes. doesn't tend to matter. You can go off and be successful without school. You know, you can, it's a little well, bit more. It's um, actually flipped. You're almost more successful if you don't stay in the system. Correct. And, and it's why I love looking at the difference between the American culture and the Kiwi culture. And I think, you know, they both have pros and cons, of course. But one of the cons for the New Zealand one is that I think young boys and young girls as well um, feel a little bit constrained. Like, it's almost like you could map your whole life out ahead of you. And that just takes away a whole lot of the excitement, the adventure, um, and it becomes kind of like a paint-by-numbers system. So I think that doesn't play into boys becoming men, you know, and taking chances and risks and so on. So I think that's one of the big problems here. Yeah. So there's a couple of interesting things there. I mean, one is the differences between, say, New Zealand culture and American culture, or between Kiwis and Americans. And be cool to unpack that in a little bit more detail. But And there's a second thing there too. I mean, you, you talked about the physical training and the Greek model. And I think we should circle back to that because I know, um, you know, that that's an area of expertise of yours that I've only just been figuring out about and uh, been learning about. So I want to come back to that as well. But before we do, I think, it, Nate, I think it would be interesting to kind of just go down this education path a little bit more. We've been talking about boys and the, one of the questions, I mean, I've got a son, I've got two girls and a boy. My, my son's 10 years old. One of the questions in my mind is for these young, young guys, young men, how do they kind of, how do they take the control back? You know, how do they, how do they get sorted out in this, in this environment that we've got, whether they're at home or at school, often they're, you know, there's a sense that they are passive. So I know some of your work, uh, Damon has been around this idea of agency. And I'm just thinking if we, if we kind of, focus that on i don't know more general strategies for for someone who's a dad a father what can they do to perhaps to encourage their boys to kind of be more have more agency or, or have more kind of direction in their lives or if there's young guys listening are there things that they can do are there strategies that they can adopt or are there things that are proven successfully to work um, as opposed to just kind of going with the flow here we go. I'm, I'm going to get in and then I'm going to let Damon's the expert. So I want to throw a couple things in on this one. Yeah. One of the interesting things for me going through school, the one class I did well in amazingly enough was auto shop. And hence I became a mechanic, Yeah. which is an actionable, you know, yes, there was classroom, but we got out and did stuff with our hands. You know, the guys that there was still shop class in high school. You know, it wasn't you would go off and do trades. It was like all the guys that I knew were in different shop classes. And I am graduated in 92 in the late 80s and early 90s is when they were taking that all out of the schools. And back to what you're saying, Graham, I think that's one of the things that hurt is because they took all those programs out of the schools. You know, there was no place for the guys to go burn that energy off and do stuff with their hands, create, make things, do stuff like that. And and then to the other point, as fathers for our sons, we got to make life interesting. 
We got to get them out and do stuff. We have to take action. And, and I think this is going to come out as we go. I, I, I look at the term of agency as taking action, you know, more so than just reading. Okay. You read a paragraph in the book on how to uh, build a fire. Well, that's not good enough. You need to go outside and learn how to build a fire. And that's one of those things. And that comes up to my barbarian mindset. You, you got to have both. You know, you got to have you got to have the education and the words, but at the same time, you have to take the action to solidify it, not just have it floating around in your brain. Yeah, <clears throat> Com completely agree. And uh, you, one of the things uh, I'm just thinking as you're both talking is this is this attitude change that seems to happen in students. And this comes from the maths research is really interesting. So in the maths research, it turns out that if you sit in class particularly boys too, is an interesting thing here. Uh, you feel like you are just trying to learn what the teacher is telling you. So the knowledge belongs to the teacher and you're trying to get from the teacher this thing. So you don't really feel ownership. It's not your own tool, if you know what I mean. You're just trying to copy the teacher, become the teacher in a sense. That's quite uh, disempowering. Think of that as if you are now, if you change your attitude, you're now trying to beat the teacher. You're trying to take what the teacher's got and apply it and put it together in your own head. And now you're trying to uh, make it your own and do your own stuff with it. Like I'm thinking that with the mechanic stuff, there might've been a change for you in your learning when you're listening to the tutors and you're figuring out how to do stuff. And then in your head, you get a sense that you can fix a car. You know, you do it your, or I do it my way. And this is how I do it. You develop a, a self-confidence. You take ownership of that knowledge. The school system seems to be that you don't take ownership of that knowledge or there's no, um, sort of implicit system in there where students take ownership of it. It's meant to happen naturally, but it seems, especially talking to lower um, performing students, you know, those students who don't learn it, they feel like uh, everything belongs to somebody else. All the knowledge belongs to other people and they need to kind of step into those other people's shoes instead of taking ownership of it and using it for themselves. So it's like they're always borrowing somebody else's tools instead of having their own um, you know, a toolbox full of tools that they can use to go out and do stuff in the world. So action, absolutely taking action and having some sense of ownership about it and being confident that you can actually use a skill in your own way. Those seem to be the key things. Um, one of the things they did with maths to try to encourage that was to shift it so that learners, instead of mimicking the teacher or becoming the teacher, they tried to position them as explorers. So you're explorers and you're, you're basically on your own. Here are some tools you guys need to figure it out for yourself. That was the philosophy. It never quite worked, interestingly enough. But um, but the, I thought the theory was good, <laughs> you know. So okay, yeah. So interesting stuff. So let's hit on ownership a little more because it's. I don't think I've ever really thought of it that way. Uh, you, you know, and you're you're dead on on the mechanics. Here's the basics on how to take apart a Briggs and Stratton. Okay. And then we were to go take it. Well, what if we did a different order? You know, I took this bolt off first and this, and then systematically you just learn patterns. Or how do I service a school bus? I had my way. The mechanic next to me did the same thing. We'd come to the same end point, but we did it differently because we figured it out for ourselves. We took ownership. My way was fast for me. His way was fast for him. Yeah. How how do th that's a good thing? How do we convince them to take ownership? Because my boy, I'm I have one one son and he's 14, and with the current mess that's going on here in the states, I'm homeschooling, and that's one of the things he, he's good at educating him, not educating himself. So that's not right. I got him on a program where he can work at like self paced with yeah. a little bit of guidance from me. But how do you get that per boy? You know, how do we get them to take ownership of that? How, how do you, what would you suggest to help along with those lines? And can I just check, just, just before oh, yeah. you jump, just throw one comment in there. Yeah. Um, perhaps pertinent to this conversation as well at some stage, Damon, is the idea of risk. So I just wonder whether that's a factor that comes in somewhere. Yeah. Um, one thing we know is it's definitely not an exact science, but there's a couple of dangers, I think, that are good indicators. One of the dangers is there's this research on uh, dads who teach their sons mathematics at home. So imagine your boy's having difficulties at school with mathematics and you decide to teach them. This can go terribly wrong or terribly right. Right. If you, um, if you try to, you know, basically beat, beat the, not, not literally beat, but, you know, <laughs> beat the knowledge into them, 
Um, what can it happen fails. a lot of times? It just straight up fails. I'm on the failure side. I can't teach him. I have to find somebody else to. Like, that's why I went on and found a program. But then if he gets, like, a struggle, like, hey, it's like, all right. And I'll even throw this in. Like, he wanted to learn how to play Minecraft on Xbox. Yeah. I showed him where he could find the tools on YouTube to teach him how to play. So he had to go learn how to – I didn't teach him how to play, play. Yeah, you did, and I do that the same with schoolwork. Now, if he needs my help to find something or a little pro, okay, then I'm there for him. So, yeah, absolutely, that seems to be it. It seems to be um, that fathers have a tendency to take over the show, you know. So, you, so you, you then you you're the, you're the boss, and you're kind of showing them how to do it, which is kind of remodeling that school stuff. And so, and I don't know the answer to this, but the trick seems to be. Co- becoming a coach more than a teacher, if you, you know, so you're asking them questions, you engage in dialogue. How would you find this out? Exactly what you're saying that, you know, you're pointing them towards stuff and it's quite neat. Uh, I've got a son who's um, doing mathematics at university. He, and he's very good. And the way that I struck uh, two, two things. Number one is most of the time I didn't know what he was talking about and he's asking me for help. So the strategy I took was just to ask him to explain it to me explain it to me, tell me exactly what you're doing. And then I'll ask questions and I don't need to be the expert, but just by him talking it through and me asking questions and saying, talk to this guy, it kind of helps him take more agency, you know, step into it. So what are you going to do to find out about this? Where are you going to go? And so I become the coach rather than the teacher. And, uh, and of course, sometimes there's teaching in there as well, of course, but it seems to be in the research. It's interesting your kids tend to grow up to be like you regardless in certain aspects. So you just kind of have to model this good stuff, engage them in discussions and not, you know, or resist that urge to take over. There's a really interesting thing um, called teacher lust. And teacher lust is not when you um, have a crush on your teacher, but it's when the teacher can't help but teach. They're addicted to teaching. So you get it a lot. Uh, you get a lot with mums actually. Uh, so, so imagine you know a lot about a particular topic and the kids come to you and say, hey, tell me about this. You just can't help but share everything you know because there's a little bit of an ego boost in it for you. And so you have to resist that urge. And the more you engage in teacher lust, which is showing the kids how much you know and you're kind of reliving your glory days, you actually position them as non-agentic, you know. <laughs> so the trick is to try to resist that urge and encourage them, you know, to find their own way. Uh, uh, how does that sound? I've been talking for a while. Oh, no, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you're, you're reaffirming some of my own ideas that I have. And, and yes, I watch myself. Um, that, that's actually one of my problems. And I catch myself and correct it normally fairly quickly anymore. It's like, okay, I'll rattle all this stuff off. Where a lot of times I'll just be like, here, go do this. And then when he runs into a problem, I'm like, okay, this is how you fix this or do, you know, take this yeah. apart or put in it. But yeah, I work to force him to do things on his own. So. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. I think the, the one thing I've learned from this education thing, the, the one thing that I've become good at is not giving people the answers or not telling them things, but just kind of trying to give them a little bit just to get to the next point themselves. It seems, this is really interesting in the research. It seems whatever you, whatever you guys are a master at, think about what you're the best at. You will have taught yourself that. You will have collected information, taken it on board. But in a sense, you've taught yourself what those things are. And it's, it turns out that that's kind of true for everything. Reading, maths, probably mechanics, you know, whatever it is. Eventually, you've had to jump in the deep end and make sense of it yourself. And so it's kind of, as an educator, you have to take a step back and let the, let the others develop that agency, you know, make mistakes, figure it out. But that, uh, that idea of jumping in the deep end, you know, there's a risk involved with that, isn't there? Like if I'm, if I'm about, I've got an idea on how to do something, maybe how to fix something or how to do a calculation and I'm unsure and I'm, I'm kind of on the standing on the boat, the boat's on the water, something out there that I think I might be able to, I might be able to do it. But I'm not sure. Yeah. Do I jump? out of the boat or don't I? I mean, there's, that's, there's a risk involved for me. I'm just wondering how that kind of factors into it. It's, that's really interesting. So it turns out that uh, we all have these different kind of resilience factors. Imagine you have, a, you have a bank in you, it's a resilience bank. 
um, the young people I was working with who dropped out of school had really low resilience. In fact, they had a thing called learned helplessness. And learned helplessness is this belief that people can develop where they don't believe anything that they individually do can change the outcome. So they're completely dependent on, a, on another party helping them out. So the trick is to let them take the risks within the careful confines of what you know they can handle. So you don't want to break them, but you want to, you know, if they're, if they're really... Um, have high confidence and you know they're pretty you know sturdy characters then you can let them take a lot of risk and if they fail that's okay because they'll be okay uh, other characters you know that risk will break them and they won't want to take a risk again they'll become risk averse and so on so it's kind of figuring out you know that um, what's kind of a, a spectrum of where they sit in terms of their susceptibility to being damaged by the risk I guess um what's interesting here David is yeah. uh, Mike who I had on it'll be last week's podcast talked about this very thing in his coming up through school. I mean, almost word for word, I'm sitting here thinking and I'm like, man, I just had this conversation because that's what happened to him. You know, they basically told him he wasn't smart enough. Yeah. And because of that, he started to develop. Well, I'm not smart. And he had to work to overcome that, which he did or, Still, yes, I would say he did. He's a very smart man. So, um, yeah, yeah. And but, uh, just just on that note, there's an interesting thing I was looking at in the PhD was people with low resilience uh, when they go into a new learning course or something. Um, often they have this question. So if you're if you're pumped up and you're feeling confident, you know, then usually you jump into a course and you just think, "Cool, I'm going to learn all this great stuff." Yeah. But a lot of other people have this question, and they're asking themselves from day one, am I smart enough to do this course? And so they're attuned, you know, their attention is on any, in, any sort of sign to confirm that. And so when they begin to experience difficulties in the learning, they, they then go, ah, I'm not smart enough to learn this. And certainly the learners I was working with would then disengage. So they then try to avoid it. Um, they try to avoid looking, looking like fools, you know, so then they'd stop trying and so on. So their, their strategy was just to get away from the difficult area whereas other people would push into that difficult area, you know, if, if it was embarrassing. They sort of had enough resilience to push push through the, the confusion, the frustration and so on and make it through. And so how you develop people who have that resilience, you know, to, to keep pushing through. And I guess, you know, a thing with us being fathers is part of, you know, building that into the kids, which a lot of it is just coaching from my experience, you know, when they fail, what are you going to do? You're going to back off or are you going to dig in and you're going to, you're going to kind of take a, like a, you know, a barbarian mindset. You're going to, what do you, what's your play here? You back off yep. where you go hard. And um, yeah. Yep. It's only a, it's only, a, only a failure if you don't get back up, you know, it's just, it's a learning experience. That's something I try to teach. Okay. You didn't do good on this. It's a learning experience. Yeah. Try again. Uh, absolutely yeah. yeah and knowing that that uh you know those difficulties and those failures are that's part of the process you know that's the only way you get better is by being thrown in the deep end i think of <laughs> this is gonna sound silly but uh, i don't know if you remember the 300 the film 300 yep. spartans you know there's a scene in there where young leonides is getting the snot beaten out of him uh as a kid i think his dad's but you know and it's kind of like you become a great warrior uh, not by winning every fight you're in, but by being roughed up, you know, <laughs> you know, right. you're going to develop scars, you're going to get roughed up, but you're tough. And, um, and taking that mentality into whatever it is you're learning, you know, that, that kind of warrior mentality. Um, yeah, you're going to take some beats, but that's See, part of what this process is. And, and that, that's a good point. And we were, as we were talking earlier on, um, you know, like, like the Greek philosophies and some of the others, you know, most of your warrior societies are very structured, you know, from start to finish, youth to whatever, and then they became great men later, you know, both physically and educational. Their youth was very, very structured. And in some ways we're like, well, they don't get to grow, but they had a foundation built. So later on in life, they can grow exponentially because they already have a strong foundation. We're here in America with how I view the school system, and I, and I don't high it very highly, but view it very highly. But the kids don't have a strong foundation. You know, at one time, 
uh, a person could graduate here at, at the eighth grade, which was like 14 years old, and they'd be considered an educated man and go out and, and make a life for themselves. Yeah. And then it moved to the high school four years later. Oh, you had to get to high school to be an educated man and go make something for yourself. Nowadays, it's basically they're telling them, well, you got to do two years of community college or university so you can be have this solid information to go be an adult. Okay, now you're in your 20s, and we're getting to about a point now. Well, if you don't go do four years of college, you're never yeah. going to make it in this world. So you're telling me that, you know, less than 100 years ago, a 14-year-old could go be, you know, this amazing person, and now you're telling me this 24-year-old, so you're adding 10 years on, and you're like, okay, would a little bit of structure and pain for a strong foundation be better early on? And, and I agree with you. Would I like that? No. Would if I had had it, would I had a stronger foundation? Look at your stronger societies. You know, your stronger – yeah. Where do you get to grow and stuff? We look back and I'm like, I, I almost lean toward, and granted, I'm past that age, but, you know, so looking back, it's like I wouldn't have liked it at the time, but would I have been better for it going on in my life? Yeah. I don't, I, I lean toward the structure side of things. And it's funny coming to me because I'm, <coughs> excuse me, I'm, I'm like the least structured at home. You know, yeah. I'm really easy going. Uh, my kid's good, so I'm lucky in that regards. And, you know, you know, and it's more of a teaching atmosphere showing it, but it makes me wonder about that. Yeah. I think, I think the structure does a couple of things. I, I think it's great, but boy, wouldn't it have been great to grow up with a, with a nice structure where you had good people coaching you and pushing you and giving you what you needed. Uh, in the agency research that Graham was talking about, um, one of the big things was being able to set goals, sort of micro goals, and then create a plan to achieve that goal and then take action, achieve that goal. That kind of process, you know, you, you see something you want, you work hard, you get it. And you start stacking that little process on top of each other and you build confidence and, and know-how. The school system definitely doesn't, doesn't structure that, you know. And so, but I, I notice that uh, young people and, and older people haven't figured out how to implement that structure, that highly structured system for themselves. So, in the research, they have a couple of things. One of them is called aimlessness. And aimlessness is when basically you do what the teacher tells you or what your education system tells you to do. But in the short term, you don't really know what you're doing. You're just kind of following their instructions. But because it's not finely structured, you have no way of kind of um, telling whether you're being successful or not. So you don't have those little benchmarks, you know, yes, I've made it to this or, you know, I now know that I'm in the right place at the right time. Boom, next one develop confidence as these stack up. So you're kind of left a little bit to your own devices without any clear indications of success. So you might be learning stuff, but you don't build all those good kind of internal, um, I don't know what they are, systems, you know, for knowing that uh, you can overcome challenges and, and if you work hard, you can complete these goals and so on. So yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that that structure produces, you know, strong people. Let's, let's just throw one more thing into the education mix and then, and then maybe we shift the discussion to a couple of those other things that we touched on at the beginning. I wonder, Damon, um, one of the things that you said earlier on was about, um, you might have used the word relevance or context when it comes to kind of learning and taking agency, you know, having this, being able to take action over what you're doing. So I wonder whether you could just talk about that for a bit, this idea of the relevance of, what, you know, if it's maths or something else, how important is the context for it or, or whether you feel like it's relevant to your life? Yeah. And, uh, and, and Graham, I know, you know, the answer to this, um, <laughs> you know, cause we work in this, Graham and I work in adult education, which is typically, you know, well, the contracts that we're doing is for people who've dropped out of the school system and now they're, they're trying to re-engage with education as adults. Um, just, just reframe the, the question really quickly, Graham. How important is context for learning? Context. Well, it's vital. I'm just thinking, sorry, the, the reason is because I, I flip back to this kid in school who's learning uh, <coughs> algebra, you know, as a classic one or, or trigonometry or something without any context to put that into. Um, teaching trigonometry without any 
immediate application just it means you, you learn this stuff you might even learn it for a year when you're at school and then it's gone you know it just ceases to exist um, and it's really good to contrast that with the guys who learn it in the army and one of the reasons they learn it in the army is because they have to get across rivers and they have to judge distances and I've actually just been reading um, the American sniper uh, manual uh, and the American sniper manual the old one uses trigonometry and these, these different mathematical things to be able to scope in and, you know, tell how the bullet's going to go and so on. Um, and so the relevance is, my point of this is that the relevance is right there. So the guys learning it in the army tend to pick it up and get it, even when they haven't learned it at school. So they learned it at school once and it's kind of become this, oh, I did it once hundred years ago and I vaguely remember a few things, but there was no real context. So now they learn it in the context of a training system where they have to then go out and practice. So they either hit the target or they don't. And they seem to learn that in almost half the time and they remember it and they're able to use it and they become really good at thinking the stuff through the head. So context is absolutely vital. And I guess that's the weakness of the entire school system is you've got a bunch of young kids who want to get out and be playing and building stuff and doing things. And you're trying to teach them a set of skills for some point in the future that they can't see. And, um, and expect them to remember this and lock it into their long-term memory and so on, and it just doesn't happen. So context, absolutely vital. It's a real challenge. I mean, trying to, trying to you know, you need, for example, in the maths world, you need to know about fractions and so on to learn this other stuff. But if there's no context or, no, or, or the students don't know the reason to learn it, then it just becomes noise in the background of their life. How's that, Greg? Tell us. Awesome. I can can relate to that real well. What's interesting, um, I I went to 249 school. 249 Bravo is what I carried in the military, one one of them. And in that class, you had to learn all these systems for clearing clearing the weapon system, loading it, and the whole nine yards. And I was good at it. And my sergeants could even see me doing it, but at the end of class, you had to rattle a test. Well, part of that test was you had to tell the sergeant everything that you're doing in a certain amount of time. I could not rattle off what I could do. I would mess up every time. And finally, he looked at me and he goes, I know you know this stuff. Okay, I'm just going to tell you do this or do that and just run through it. And I was the fastest guy in class. I can run through every action with my hands as long as I didn't have to label it out. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if once I had to say, well, I have to open this first and click this first or do such and such, I, I would lose my track because I would just do it. And, yeah. and and I ended up passing, but it was like, you know, it's like, just just let me do this. Don't, I'm not the, I'm not the teacher here. I don't need to be, I'm not going to be sitting out on a battlefield someplace going, okay, click these buttons to open. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, it's like, hey, I need to open this up and reload it quickly. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like that was some educator's good idea for assessing you, you know, to get you to talk through it as you're doing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where we were in that, that case, you just need to be able to do the action. So yeah. I, and, and I, I can see that it's like, I never even thought about trigonometry when I'm shooting, and, but you're right. It still plays into it. I, and that's where I would have to learn it. Yeah. It's a funny name. Just as you're talking, I was thinking we have this uh, weird licensing thing. You know, all our 16 year olds, are we this big problem in New Zealand where a lot of people with lower literacy and numeracy skills don't get their licenses. So they just drive without a license and then away they go with the fines and so on. One of these tests is you have, to, you have to drive around for a while with an instructor, go through a roundabout, and then they ask you to pull over and explain, talk through everything that just happened. And all these boys are failing this test, right? And it's like, uh, why are boys failing this? And, I, and I, all I can think is that boys aren't as verbal as girls, you know, typically. And you're doing the action, they're fine, but they have to be able to recall all of the stuff and explain it. It's driving them nuts. And uh, anyway, so we have this yep. huge drop of boys getting their licenses. They, they had that note uh, when I was taking my um, driving license for uh, semis. Same kind of thing. You had to talk through what you had to do, and so many guys would fail on that because they couldn't do uh, running commentary. That's what yeah. they called it, running commentary. Right. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why you're, and they want to know that it's ingrained into you. That That's yeah. basically in. It's like I, I could do that somewhat. But at the same token, it's very difficult. It's, yeah. yeah. 
Let me tell you where this. Sorry, I'm just thinking some of that's like a bandwidth issue. You know, like you, I imagine you've got so much mental capacity to do whatever you're doing, and if if most of it is used up doing the thing, then there's there's not very much bandwidth left over to engage. You know, like the verbal cortex or whatever it is in your brain. Yeah. Because you're just, you know, another part of your brain is operating that's dominant, that you're just doing the thing. Let me tell you this funny story. We, uh, we, we went out and did some um, um, parachuting. And so solo parachuting. So we all show up for this day to do a training course. And we, we do a full day's training course. And we're going to parachute later in the afternoon. And you have to, I don't know if you guys have done it, but you have, you have to stand on the ground and pretend you've got your parachute on and turn and turn and check the wind and all this. Well, the assessment at the end is they, they hang a harness from the roof in front of this class. And so there's probably about 30 girls in this class, about 10 guys. And you have to climb up this ladder into this harness, hanging in this classroom. And then they take the ladder away and the harness just cuts into you, right? So, so all the guys who are watching this thinking, oh, don't do the harness up tight because poor old Murray goes first. So Murray's hanging from this harness very painfully in front of this room of girls and then the assessor comes along and says okay Murray talk me through it you've just jumped out of the plane you've got the wind coming from the west what do you do and Murray just had a complete mental breakdown he went red he couldn't think he could barely speak oh it was hysterical poor guy and, he, and they didn't let him down he couldn't get down the worst example of putting a guy in a spot I've ever seen in my life just <laughs> anyway poor old Murray he, he did jump and uh and we all thought, gee, if Murray can jump and survive this thing, we can all do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I, I think I can just really quickly sum up some of this education stuff is, is a couple of key points there that I'm picking up. One is, you know, as, as dads, as fathers or as educators, we need to step back from teaching too much. So, you know, this idea of let's uh, become the coach rather than the teacher we need to model the good stuff. We need to not give people the answers. We need to pro provide context and relevance. And, and really, I, I like that toolbox metaphor, you know, like equip our sons and others as well, but equip them with the tools that they need in their toolbox so that they can then go and use those tools to do whatever the thing is and, and take ownership of the knowledge. So mm. that's, that's kind of my summary of that. But let's, uh, why don't we park the, we don't have to totally park it, but just to kind of jump into a couple of uh, other areas. The, one of the things that we touched on really briefly at the beginning, Damo, was this idea of, you know, the physical training is part of this bigger mindset of education. So, I mean, let, let's go down that little rabbit trail. I know, you know, Nate's a big fan of um, working out. He's been lifting for four or five years. I've just started and it's really, I mean, we were, we were talking offline just beforehand. I've been, I've been lifting for a couple of months now. And it's really, yeah. the reason I have been, I was telling both of you is because both of you. So one was an article that Nate wrote a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago talking about, here's a list of basic things that, you know, any man should be able to do. And it was, you know, the deadlifts and the squats and, and certain amount of weight. And then that's when I got talking to you, Damon, about it. And I, I said, well, what do I need to buy? And you, you gave me a list of things that I needed to get started. And you set me up with some exercises and, 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 you know, you've, you've now written this, this book. So I don't know, let's, let's go into some of your background about that and, and maybe talk about that a little bit. There we go. Oh, to hit this off, what, what's your deadlift at, Graham? Oh, my deadlifts, I can deadlift my body weight. That was my, I had two goals. So I'm, I'm not a mess. I'm not a huge guy. I'm, I'm just, I'm probably 72 kgs. So I can deadlift my body weight at the moment. So I'm just hitting the, hitting nice. that. So that's 70, 70 kgs on the bar. And uh, I'm just at the stage where I, I need to go up in some smaller increments, but I don't have the, I don't have the small weights to do it. It's funny. I, the guy that I've been dealing with, with the gear, there's, um, there's some ESOL issues and I, I'd email him and say, look, I need a, I need two, two point, and maybe there's some numeracy issues too. I need two, 2.5 kg weights to go on an Olympic bar. And I just get back these random emails and gibberish. And we go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. I need this. I need. And in the end, he was just sending me stuff, and I go, "Yes, yes, yes, send that." So he sent me these weights, and but the, they're the wrong diameter. It's like a twenty-five mil diameter instead of the fifty mil diameter. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I need to start again with the small increments. But I'm, I think I'm at the stage where I can start pushing that seventy kg deadlift up, um, up a bit. 
Good. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I am. I mean, I, I don't mind that it's the same thing. So I've been doing it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I, normally I'd run or I'd jump on the elliptical machine and do like a 5K run outside or 10Ks on the elliptical. But I've had a funny kind of injury, which I think is like a hip flexor injury. And I think it's, again, you know, getting older, the pounding, the, t- the ligaments and things like that yeah. when it comes to running, it's, it's pretty hard on your body. So I have been enjoying the fact that this just means I can back off on the running and just concentrate on, you know, the, the, the deadlifts and the squats. Yeah. So. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Nate, I saw your post about, uh, I think one of your goals was working towards uh, the 405 squat. Uh, oh, highly, yes. highly impressive, man. Highly, highly impressive. Yes, I'm, I'm back to pushing the heavies. I took off. I actually took some time off. Um, I hurt my shoulder, and I just I kept pushing, and I wouldn't let it recover. And yeah. finally this in, well, yeah, no, 2018? What is this? Yeah, because this is a year of goofy. So in 2018, I started to let it recover, and I'm slowly working up. And uh, I switched to a little bit more of a bodybuilding routine. For the last, I don't know, since February. And I've just been taking it easy, and I I am just now getting back into pushing heavy again. It was like my injuries all fixed themselves. And being 46, I had to give them time to fix themselves. But like the other day, I was squatting um, 300 for sets of uh, five. So, and and that's, that's the goal is slowly just start working those weights back up. And, yeah. Yeah. Those injuries, uh, I agree. They, uh, you know, I, I'm not as smart as you, Nate, so I just tried to push on through the elbows and the shoulder injuries, Shoulders. and now I am paying the price. Price. In, <laughs> unfortunately, we, we have to take that time off. In, in our, our push goal, I mean, I dealt with a bad shoulder for almost two years before I finally went. And, you know, it's like go to the doctor, check on surgery, check on the – and finally it came down to – eating right, getting the right amount of rest, backing off of it. And then I switched gears. And part of why I went the bodybuilding right is I strengthened all the muscles around it. What's hurting? This is hurting. Okay, quit doing that. Do something else. So I never quit working out, but I lost some of those strength gains because I'm not lifting heavy. So, but yeah, sometimes we have to just back off and let the body heal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's good to hear that. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or it just forces you in the end. In the end, it just forces, forces you down. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and then I'm coming out of it stronger. Like I, yeah. I you know, you, when, when you can tackle something that used to be a goal and you go to like, I hadn't, I hadn't squatted heavy in six months and I was able to do 300. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That tells me I'm doing well. So, yeah. and I mean, my top PR when I was squatting heavy was like in the 350, 360 range. So yeah. I'm not that far off. It's just muscle memory. It'll come back yeah. quick. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I lost you. <laughs> David's yeah, yeah, thinking gonna... now. <laughs> That's great. I, one of the, one of the cool things I'm doing is I'm kind of coaching the boy coaching as a, they wouldn't like me to use that word, but I've I started coaching them. Like it's a little bit of ownership, you know. Now that now they're getting ownership over the training, but it's great seeing the boys, um, you know, getting getting really strong. I did a workout with Mikey yesterday in his squats, and um, he's really strong. Hey, eh? he's he's really really strong. Actually, the numbers are similar to yours, Nate. Which are, around here, those are very big numbers. Yes. And um, so how old is Mikey? Just, just for context, how old is he? He's 17 and he's uh, 71 kilo and, uh, and he's squatting yesterday. He's doing uh, sets of five and six with 130 kilos. So a little under, a little under 300 pounds, but that's um, and pretty comfortable, good squat. So that's uh, a kid See, he's two doing years that ago. At 70 kilo and I'm at about 97 kilos for a weight. So, which is about 215. So yes, he's doing better than I am. <laughs> Being being seventeen, he doesn't have uh, an ounce of fat on him, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's good. It's good. It's in, it's really encouraging uh, to see you know to see that paying off. And and of course, um, you know the other boys see that as well and want to have a crack at that. Um, 
Yeah, so it's it's good. So so we've definitely it's meathead central around here. We're right into it. So uh, nice. Yeah, it's good. Well, it, and then Graham mentioned your book. Tell us a little bit about that and and how you got to it. Uh, so so how I got into the and how I became a full on meathead was was probably like all of us as a kid. You know, I was, I was mad keen on ninjas and martial arts and. I wandered into a secondhand magazine store uh, that you know used to be around in the day, and I saw the first picture ever of Arnold on a cover, and I was like, "What? What is this thing?" You know, what? I've never seen anything <laughs> like it. And uh, I was like, "Gee!" So, bought the magazine and took it home to my parents, and they said, "How disgusting!" And you know, all of that stuff. And I was highly interested. I was just like, "Man, what is this? What is this game of of lifting weights and growing muscles?" And um, I ended up becoming a full on, you know, gym kid I, I started wagging school every day I wouldn't go to school on squat days because it was you know time to squat and I just lived at the gym with a bunch of guys when I was about 15 or 16 who were unemployed they're all in their 20s unemployed because that would take up too much energy for training right they would just they would just eat live at the gym you know talk all the stuff and then would go back to their place and they just slept on mattresses on the floor no beds or anything like this and I hooked up with these guys and it was just great fun. <laughs> it's great, you know? And, and uh, so I started hanging around with these older guys and um, complete, complete nutters. Some of them are on um, steroids and different things. And I just fell in love with the whole thing. And then uh, eventually I transitioned from bodyboarding uh, to powerlifting. I started, you know, seeing some powerlifters and just seeing the strength difference in these guys, you know, from the gym, I was at Gold's gym and, you know, one guy could squat, 400 pounds, you know, four twenties on each side, 180 kilo. And the whole gym would stop and we'd all crowd around and watch this guy, you know, it was amazing. And then, uh, and then when I switched to a powerlifting gym, there'd be a guy with 300 kilo, you know, and it was just, I'd never seen anything like it and it just blew my world. So I was, I was addicted. So, <laughs> so I, um, started doing the powerlifting competitions and friends were powerlifters and that sort of thing. And, um, just fell in love with the whole world. So, now that I'm a bit older, the way the book came around, the, the, the book has got a weird title. It's called, um, So You're Going to Be Attacked in Three Months. And this came out of a conversation. So we're doing squats regularly, you know, and we're sitting around talking in between sets and, and we start to come up with this kind of stupid idea. What's, what's the greatest workout for a, for a beginner? And I started playing with this idea. Well, it's this, this concept that, you know, if you were going to be attacked in three months, how would you train for it? You know, and, <laughs> You'd work on the big lifts, deadlifts, squats, and so on. And um, and that's where it came from. So I decided Graham was talking to me and, and said, well, why don't you write it down? So I uh, I just started writing and it pretty much wrote itself, you know. So it's a, well, it's got a little bit long. Anything I do ends up becoming twice as long as it should be. But um, <laughs> but it's meant to be a fun kind of insight into beginning lifting designed for the beginner, you know. So right. So that's what it is. A little bit of fun, a little bit of good advice. So, so just a word on the on the book. It's not your ordinary kind of how to do X Y Z technical manual. It's it's written as a story, and the, there are characters in the story. So that makes it quite engaging. And it, you know, I think I was thinking yesterday, Damon. It really feels like you're writing to, I don't know, your boys or their friends or something like that. So as you read the story, you get the information, and and it. I guess just to pick up on some of those things from earlier on, it provides the context for the technical stuff. You know, so you read the story, you get to know the characters, you realize what's going on. You've got these scenarios in your head. It's like, heck, what, what do I need to do if someone's going to attack me in three months? And then as the characters kind of go through the story, they, you know, they learn what they need, they learn the equipment that they need. They learn the, the exercises and, and then they start to get their heads around the technical stuff as, as they get better. So I think that makes it quite different to just a manual on how to do deadlifts. You know, it's a, it's quite an engaging story. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's like me seeing that first bodybuilding magazine, you kind of want to, uh, there's a gym culture, you know, that meet, I call it meathead, but I put it in the finest, to, you know, I really <laughs> like it, but there's nothing like uh, sitting around and just talking big squats and deadlifts and fighting. And um, there's something about it that uh, is truly wonderful. It's like you get to uh, step off the planet for a little while and just talk straight barbarian stuff, I guess, you know, um, there you go. I mean, I, I remember reading about uh, these training days that Arnold and the boys would have, you know, and they'd, 
they'd have a barbecue going, they'd set up, they'd squat all day, you know, ridiculous concept, but they'd have the barbecue on with big slabs of meat, eat the meat, do the squats, and it was just something magnificent about that lifestyle, <laughs> you know? No. Do, do you ever get on T-Nation? Is that a yes. website? Okay. Yes. My favorite articles are the ones that are in like a story form or they have like a little skit or they're just making fun of people. The, yeah. They add that humor in here. Yeah. yeah. Here's a little technical aspect. Here's the reasons why or for, but you know, it's like in some of the authors just like to bash each other and you know, yeah. and you read it along and you, and you, after a while you get to know some of them, but it's, yeah. it, it's, I'm wondering if that's curious, if that's how your book set up a little is in that story form. It is in a story form. It's not based on the T Nation stuff. It's actually no, no, based no, not on, on T. Yes, make oh. that correction. Not on the T Nation, but that same concept. Absolutely. It, uh, what we do is um, in the in the book. The book is really a conversation with a bunch of young guys sitting around a fire pit at night, and uh, it's something we do here. We um, usually the boys will invite a bunch of friends around on Friday night or something, and and they'll sit around the fire, and um, and I come out and talk to them for a while, and then I kind of leave because you know. I'm, you know the old yeah. guy of the group um <laughs> but we, we talk about all sorts of things you know and it's really good so the idea of the book is it's a conversation around the fire a hypothetical okay so you're going to be attacked in three months you don't know where or when or how what would you do to prepare and then uh you know the boys put forward ideas like uh you know learn martial arts or carry weapons or so on and, and then i introduce the idea of becoming as savagely strong as humanly possible you know so you can you can destroy this guy. And, um, and then it just, it flows on from there. So it's really the guys asking questions and me answering it. And it's a little bit, um, well, it plays, it certainly plays into the uh, barbarian <laughs> philosophy. philosophy. There we go. Uh, yeah. I, I have another friend uh, on IG uh, uh, showing my son the way and his biggest comment when it comes to lifting or getting stronger is he wants to be able to run up a hill and fight a bear. That, yeah. That's his whole concept. Run up a hill, yeah. fight a bear. What What are you working out for? So I can run up a hill and fight a bear. And he lives <laughs> out in Colorado where the mountains are stuffed for at. So his version of hill and my version of hill here in Quite Illinois different. are completely different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think you need that kind of stuff, you know, like if you're staring at the squat bar and you know it's going to be hard, you need little mind games to um, to get you going, which we talk about in the book. Maybe not enough, you know, um, I like putting on the sound. I don't know if you guys have heard. So there's a version of War Pigs, uh, the song that's at the credits of the 300 film. So, you you know, you turn up War Pigs as loud as you possibly can and you just attack that bar. And um, it's good for mental health. You know, it's good for everything. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, the book definitely plays into that. A run up a hill and kill a beer. Kill a beer. Not just wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so a bit of a bit of good fun for people who are um, new to the lifting world, I think. Yeah, and I wanted nice... to. Sorry, sorry, you go, you go. I was going to say I wanted it to be kind of accessible for new, for new people. Like I, I've noticed talking to the talking to the lads here. You know, the young guys they're about eighteen, say to, to twenty two. A lot of them jump on YouTube or on um, the internet, and they're seeing these guys that are so strong now. You know, every everybody is so powerful and strong that it's a little bit intimidating to get going. Whereas actually the truth is that's, you know, that's a, a subsection of the population who, who are exceptional, but the average person doesn't, you know, doesn't start anywhere near that. And the average person's strength increases are a little bit more humble than that. So I wanted them to, you know, understand it's like, you know, Graham going from a 50 kilo deadlift to a 70 kilo deadlift to body weight is fantastic. And the, and the actual payoff for that in terms of health and, combat and whatever it else is really high so trying to make the whole thing accessible for people as well you know not to get overly intimidated by the big numbers i was looking up um the average strength of the average person the other day far you know non-trainers are far lower than you would think um incredibly lower you're far lower than if you just watched youtube clips of powerlifters all day you know yeah well, and it's it's a small if you think about it even on the youtubers they're even a percentage of the one percenters. Yeah. You know, if you, if you go the fitness community and I'm just looking at the States and I mean, New Zealand even being smaller, it, it's, it's a very small community. 
they all know each other some way show you know through a lot of them know and they do cross but it's a small community and and it's not hard to get up into the top one percent of being strong and fit and then the youtubers are that one percent of the one percent yeah and and teaching young guys that is tough they're like what yeah you know that there's not all these strong it's it looks like there's a whole lot more of them, but it, you start to realize, you know, there's only so many bodybuilders. There's only so many power lifters. And then, I mean, um, one of the big examples is CrossFit. You know, look at all these guys at the CrossFit games. Yeah, but think of all the million people that didn't get there. Yeah. You know, that's that's a, those are subscoots in, in, in social media skews our viewpoints of it. And I think even as adults, we get caught up into that because I'll get watching Strongman and I'll be like, ooh, I'd like to do that. And I'm yeah. like, no, I'm 46 years old and he's 20 something. Yeah. You know, you start looking or you're looking at the older guys that have been Strongman all their lives or a good portion of their life. Well, their body's built for stuff. You know, it's like yeah. these guys pulling, pulling a ton off the ground. It's yeah. And yeah, no. <laughs> yeah they're not they're not normal they're not your average human being that's for sure right. yeah they've pushed their body to the limits and even i mean and eddie hall was the first one to crack 500 mm. you know he started downsizing he's like i pushed my body to the limits and it was killing me and yeah. he had to back back off you know some yeah. of these other younger guys you know thor came out and beat it by one and <laughs> but he again started backing off. You got the other guys. It's going to get beat because yeah. it's from younger guys that are going to push their limits. And then, you know, eventually a lot of them are going to back back off again. Yeah. And yeah. even in the bodybuilding, uh, uh, you're seeing it a lot uh, with Arnold. Um, oh, here we go. I got name blanks. But a lot, a lot of the old greats that were huge. Dorian Yates, that's who I was trying to think. Yeah. Dorian, all the, they all downsized because the body's not made to do that. No. No, that's, I think, Eddie Hall saying, uh, I saw a, a documentary with him sitting with his wife and he was at his biggest and he's basically saying, you know, probably I've got 10 years left at this, not 10 years of life left at this weight, so I need to get it off fast, you know. And, and um, it is odd to see that guy with a six-pack though, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> it is. Weird. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's right. And not even healthy for him, yeah. <laughs> so just a couple of quick anecdotes. Um those first chapters, Damon, when you were writing them and you're sending, Damon was was writing a chapter and he sent it through to me and I'd have a look and I was actually reading them out around the dinner table, the first three or four chapters, because it was such, you know, the six of us sitting around the table and I would read those out and have a chat about it and have a bit of a laugh. But so super engaging and, and my kids were, were engaging with that. But I've noticed one of the effects that it's had, as well as um, them seeing me go into the garage and you know, lift weights or at least hearing me do it and know that I do it three times a week on a regular basis. Um, so my middle, my middle child is Gracie, who's about to turn 16. She's actually started doing it. So she'll, so I mean, she's, yeah, she's, I mean, she's not trying to lift super heavy or anything like yeah. that, but she's just curious. And it was her curiosity, I think was stimulated by hearing those early chapters. She hasn't listened through the whole book or read the whole book or anything yet. But she'll, yeah. you know, a couple of times a week, she's heading to the garage. She's got her exercise gear on. She's going to go and she's going to do some deadlifts. She's going to do some squats. And she's actually addicted to it now. She gets a right. kick out of it. There's, yeah, she's, she's feeling the difference in her body, but there's yeah. actually, a, I don't know, it's a dopamine kick or something like that. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, this feels good. I got to, I got to get back and, and Does have she play go. sports elsewise then? No, no, oh. she is, oh, wow. she's not sporty. So this is fantastic for her. So that's just you know, another kind of a, a flow on effect. Yeah. The, the female powerlifting community has just exploded in the last like three or four years. It's just gone off. It was kind of, you go to a powerlifting uh, competition and a few female lifters kind of in the morning, that sort of thing, you know, uh, but now it's, it's almost 50, 50. In fact, they might be dominating a little bit. It's, it's really changing. Um, so a lot of, a lot of girls are finding it, you know, as a great sport. And, and one of my, uh, one of the things with that book is it, completely applicable to female lifters as well, which is why there's re really another chapter um, to go in there about female lifters. But 
Yeah. Oh, that's so, great, so, man. That's yeah. I thought you'd be keen to know, and I remember you saying the other day that you did have another chapter potentially about that. So it'd yeah, be, be good to see that at some stage. I got uh, Kate, that's my wife, Nate, to read it, and she said, uh, and I've been trying to get Kate to work out with me forever, and husbands and wives working out together doesn't seem to be a goer. It's a YouTube <laughs> thing. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think they're like, if they weren't getting paid for it, they still wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. Well, she she even said to me, gee, I, it almost makes me want to start strength training, which was like, mind's blowing. Okay, so there's something there. Yeah. Um, and just, I was just thinking really quickly, at some stage, you need to say, if someone's listening to this and they're interested in finding that book, how do they, how do they get their hands on it? Uh, they go to gumroad.com and uh and the forward slash get strong fast is the is the way to get that. But the actual book, I should say, is called um, So You're Going to Be Attacked in Three Months. A weird title, um, but So You're Going to Be Attacked in Three Months is the title you want. So And, and you, better, um, you better say the subtitle as well because I thought that's quite good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how to throw a man through a car. Yep. <laughs> not, not into a car. How to throw a man through, through a, car. a car. I like that. Um, yeah. And, uh, and basically we're talking about, you know, getting so strong that um, you throw a man through a car. That's oh. it. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Yeah, and I, I will link that in the show notes also. So for anyone watching, we'll have that link in there so you can go pick it up. But Thanks, Nate. Yep. And then it says, wanna... get savagely strong fast. I like that part. That, 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 that uh, I relate well to that. <laughs> Savage is on my top 10 word list. Great. And I think the book plays into that. It's definitely a, it's definitely a masculine take on the, uh, on the lifting game. There's some good fight stories in there. Um, yeah, it should be. If, if you like laddish behavior and uh, a bunch of meatheads sitting around talking about lifting and getting strong, or oh. you just want to enter that world a little bit, this is, this is the one. You know, there we go. It's a good intro to that world. Excellent. And it's, for me, it's been an interesting insight into, into your world, Damon. Like I've only really known you in this kind of adult education, literacy and numeracy, professional development world. So it's, yeah. uh, it's given me a bit of an insight into other parts of you know your your life and how you think about things yeah i think i'm a little bit uh split sometimes there's the the very sensible kind of academic guy and then there's this other weird wacky guy you know he likes we call that the primal side the primal side yeah there we go I thought, see I, you need to hang out I'll, I'll give you all kinds of words for your vocabulary to use <laughs> well primal. wacky crazy we're just going down the primal savage barbaric mindset yeah, yeah there we go Love it. Love it. Yeah. And sometimes I feel the need to throw off the shackles of um, being sensible and, and reasoned all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, and, that's, and that's healthy. You know, there's, there's one of the things you get entrapped too much. I think a lot of times in, in the academic or chasing work or doing whatever. And it's like, you got to tap into the primal side and just, let it go. I just, yeah. Oh, you do. Yeah. You know, those, those workouts have, um, throughout my life, they've been great. You know, the stresses of work and all of that, and then being able to let loose in an aggressive way in the gym, uh, it is fantastic. It means, you know, I'm not an aggressive guy, but I can turn it in the gym is, you know, where you get to do that, where you get to yep. be that. And, uh, so good for you, you know, otherwise, I, I don't know, I guess, I don't know how else you, you're dealing with the stress and so on, but being able to be aggressive and, crank some music and lift some heavy weights is just the, the antidote to I, I'm one of those guys who believes that, you know, squats are the antidote to every problem <laughs> that life throws at you. <laughs> Much well, to the displeasure of my family, but yeah. Well, the iron never lies. It's always heavy. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't change. It's always there. It's just is. And it's you against it. We talk about it, that in the book. I was just going to say, that's almost word for word of a couple of paragraphs in the book yeah. early on, I think. Eh? That's well, it. We had the, uh, we talked about the real life test, you know, uh, you know, it's for example, martial arts, you know, martial arts doesn't always pass the real life test. You know, you, you can be working out, but then when you run into trouble in the world, you suddenly discover that it's not quite what you thought it was going to be in the real world, but with weights, 10 kilos, 10 kilo everywhere, you know, exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah, and you can go to any country in the world, and basically, it's the same. You know, yeah. it's like a universal. You lift iron. Yes. Okay. I uh, I wrote an article once which looked at learning mathematics compared to powerlifting and uh, and learned helplessness. And I put forward the idea that in powerlifting, you are constantly trying to overcome your limitations. You're trying to always beat yourself. And uh, one of the one of the mentality tricks, you know, you stand, you're trying to beat yourself, so you when you psych up like in a competition, some guys think about all the challenges in their life and, and they put it all onto the spa. So they think all the things that are hard in life and I'm going to defeat these things, you know, so they trying to trying to get that adrenaline shock. And so they're trying to constantly dig deep within themselves to overcome impossible challenges and then make that squat or that deadlift and win. And, uh, and I was thinking about if you could, if you could take that mentality into learning mathematics, you know, instead of being defeated by it, but if you could look at all the reasons why you shouldn't be able to understand this thing and use that as energy to then focus and concentrate and learn that thing, uh, that would be a great thing. So it was about the mental uh, lessons that you can learn from lifting weights and then applying it to the academic world. But yeah, it's probably still a good idea. I should maybe flesh that out sometime. Well, maybe it applies to anything. You know, you could take those lessons, you can sure you could apply it to maths, but you could, you could, apply it to just about anything that you wanted to put your mind to in terms of, you know, taking ownership or taking action or getting some agency over it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Right on. Well, we, t- we tackled a couple of good subjects today. I-, I think we're doing good. We have some other stuff we could talk about again, but I think, I think we'll save that for another podcast because this has been great, Damon. I'm, I'm glad Graham got you on here and we, we were able to make this happen because this has been a lot of fun. It has. Well, thank you both for setting this up, Graham. Awesome. Oh, that's good. No, super pleased about it as well. Well, maybe Nate, there's another chance to to come back and kind of shoot the breeze about uh, some of the differences between Kiwis and Americans, sure. and we can talk about the New Zealand tall poppy syndrome and you know there some of that go. other. That and, other and, stuff. and if he listens to this, we'll get a third Kiwi on here so we can have have a real good conversation going. And I'll re- I'll learn some stuff. We'll go some differences and stuff. Graham, where can I, can we got people find you at? So I've got a blog, which is uh, thisisgraham.me, and I'm also on Twitter, Smith underscore Graham. So th- those are the main places. All right. Damon, where can we get find you at? Uh, I've got a, a blog site called uh, Damon's, it's a very boring title, Damon's Maths and Numeracy site, <laughs> a blog, Damon's Maths and Numeracy blog. But otherwise, I'm on Facebook, Damon Witten. I'm there. There. All right. And I always have my stuff in. If you don't know where to find me yet, um, I, I'm surprised you found this podcast. <laughs> so we're signing off for today. Gentlemen, it was wonderful having you. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate being here.